This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Gatorade. Need to rehydrate even though all you did was walk down the stairs? Try Yassified Pedialyte today. Welcome to episode 113 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about the Marcellus Shale. Not to be confused with the Marcel the Shell. One will make you emotional and existential, and the other is a shell with shoes on. It's also not to be confused with the Shale of Marcellus Wallace, but we weren't sure how many Pulp Fiction fans were among our listeners. Overall, though, if we're doing movie comparisons, Marcellus Shale is a little more like Deep Impact. Not only is it a natural gas formation over 5,000 feet underground, but it's quite impactful as the home of the world's second largest carbon bomb, which could release 26.7 billion tons of carbon dioxide over its lifetime. That's more than the entire United States emits in six years, and more than Taylor Swift's private jet would emit in 3.2 million years. Now you might be wondering, just what is a carbon bomb? If you are wondering that, you're either brand new here, or your report cards definitely said need to work on listening skills. And maybe also struggles with sitting still and needs to stop showing classmates his dinosaur undies. No? Just me? Anyway, carbon bombs are fossil fuel projects that, over their lifetime, would emit over 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide. Marcellus far exceeds that with 22.7 billion tons worth of emissions from its natural gas, and another 4 billion from its natural gas liquids, such as ethane and propane. And I know that's a lot to get your head around and you're one more statistic away from turning this off, but if there's one thing I've learned from the Super Bowl two weeks ago, it's that the best way to keep an audience is a really good commercial. So step aside Danny McBride and Downey Unstoppables, here's the Super Bowl ad of the year. I was wrong about carbon bombs, because it kept Pennsylvania smelling like ethane for weeks. I'm a frickin' believer now. Time to tell the world. Call me Ethane Brown. Come on! Y'all gotta sniff this stuff ASAP! Look alive, Mr. H! Ugh, cul-de-sacs. Sniff this! I am Ethane Brown! And I am unstoppable- Knocked Ethane down. Gets back up again. Gotta sniff it to believe it. Wait, ethane is an odorless gas? Well, we tried. If you've just hopped on the carbon bomb train today, here's the Sparknotes version. Oh, sorry, you want the Chegg version? That'll be $14.95 a month. We've got interns to underpay. For legal reasons, that is a joke. In May of 2022, The Guardian found that the world's largest oil and gas companies have planned or started 195 of those carbon bombs that, if they proceed, could emit a total of 646 billion tons of carbon dioxide, blowing our global climate goals out of the water. Which brings us to the Marcellus Shale, the world's second highest emitting carbon bomb. It's a 90,000-square-mile formation of sedimentary rock, spanning Pennsylvania, West Virginia, New York, Ohio, Maryland, and, depending on the map, a teeny sliver of New Jersey. 
That said, when I asked the Marcellus Shale who the boss is, it didn't shout Bruce back at me, so no way is it a true New Jersian. The Marcellus Shale contains mostly natural gas, relatable, and some natural gas liquids, relatable after Taco Bell. And besides having a crippling inferiority complex for coming in second place on the carbon bomb list, the Marcellus Shale has a bunch of other toxic traits that threaten public health, ecosystems, the economy, justice, and the rate of global climate change. And you thought your ex was bad. So today, we'll explore what issues are found in the Marcellus Shale region, how they affect local economies and justice, and how the region might move forward. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. If you're planning a visit to the Marcellus Shale, there won't be much to see, because it's actually 5,000 to 9,000 feet underground. How did it get so deep? Well, it took a lot of introspection, therapy, and an eat-pray-love-esque journey to the center of the Earth. And let me tell you, it will not shut up about it. It also insists Jupiter was in retrograde for that entire time, but that's another story. About 390 million years ago, what is now western Pennsylvania was actually part of a large inland sea. That's right, Pittsburgh was once a beach town. Poseidon invented Promanti Brothers sandwiches, Ariel went to Carnegie Mellon, and Dory is the Pittsburgh Steelers' long snapper to this day. Over time, biological matter dropped to the sea floor, and rivers brought in sediments that settled on top. As time went by, this concoction of sand, silt, and dead, crusty crab patrons was buried under additional layers of rock, compressing them even further. Finally, the organic material was converted to hydrocarbons under extreme pressure and heat. Honestly, no wonder it needed therapy. Maybe if we gave these shales the support they needed sooner, they wouldn't have to have made natural gas at all. Something to think about. But like me during puberty, not all parts of the Marcellus Shale developed equally. Our expert for this episode is Dr. Dave Yoxheimer, Assistant Research Professor of Earth and Mineral Sciences at Pennsylvania State University. He explained to us just what stands out about the Marcellus Shale. The further east you go, the, the drier the gas is, meaning it's more methane-rich. Um, and that's simply a, an artifact of when North America and Northern Africa had a, a fender bender about 260 million years ago, um, the closer you were to that collision, the, the hotter the rocks got, and it basically, you know, made the gas-rich part of the shale more uh, methane-rich. First of all, yikes, a collision strong enough to create New Jersey? I really hope North America and North Africa had good insurance. That collision, though, gave the Marcellus some interesting characteristics. 
Natural gas, natural gas liquids, oil, and coal are all similar chemicals. They're called hydrocarbons because they contain, can you guess it? Exactly, hydroflasks and Michael Carbonaro. Okay, fine, it's hydrogen and carbon. However, you can combine hydrogen and carbon in a lot of different ways. And as you go down that scale of fossil fuels I just listed, you see the hydrocarbon chemicals get a lot bigger. The chains get longer. To give a few examples, the simplest hydrocarbon is methane, whose chemical formula is CH4. Natural gas can be 70 to 90% methane, and at really high heats like what occurred in the eastern portion of Marcellus 260 million years ago, the hydrocarbons break down into that simple methane form. Moving up to natural gas liquids, you might have heard of ethane, which is C2H6, or propane, which is C3H8, a little longer of a chain, a little less heat needed to create it. And as we move west in the Marcellus, away from that collision, we see more natural gas liquids. Moving further along to oil, you might have seen gasoline stations before proudly advertising their gasoline's high octane content. You know, right next to their day-old pizza at the cash register that I can only assume also has high octane content. Octane is C8H18, so we get a little bigger. And as we get further west of the Marcellus, we do start to see a little bit of oil. Not a significant amount, but a little bit. And then at the lowest heats, we have coal form. And while some debate whether or not coal counts as a hydrocarbon, because it has a lot less hydrogen than the others, it certainly contains hydrocarbons. Anthracene is one example, which is C14H10, a very big boy, and that's found in anthracite coal. And of course, we all know getting into West Virginia, we're pretty firmly into coal country. So that gradient is really interesting. But that collision and the resulting heat also explains why natural gas is by far the dominant hydrocarbon in the Marcellus Shale. It's not just in the east. Anywhere you go in that formation, there's methane-rich natural gas. At 410 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, the Marcellus is the second largest natural gas find in the world, the first being my neighbor's pug after eating broccoli. No, the fart jokes won't stop. And because the Marcellus has so much natural gas, producers have to be extra careful because one, natural gas is very flammable, and two, while ethane and propane and all these other chemicals are denser than air, methane is lighter than air, meaning it leaks really easily into the atmosphere. It's like a hot Starbucks drink on the subway. To give you an example, on December 15, 2007, in a suburb of Cleveland, Richard and Thelma Payne were jolted out of bed from an explosion so powerful that it literally lifted their home off the ground. Windows shattered, doors were blown 20 feet from their hinges, and 19 neighboring homes were evacuated. Thankfully, Richard and Thelma lived to tell the tale, but holy crap! Can you imagine being woken up by that? Honestly, maybe they're onto something, though. I mean, I have to set at least five alarms in the morning, but I'm sure I'd only need, like, two explosions. 
How did this happen? Unfortunately, a drilling company working nearby failed to build a protective concrete casing within their well, allowing natural gas to leak out. And according to Dr. Yaxheimer, that's been more than a one-time occurrence. We have, you know, have had a lot of oil and gas drilling that in wells that went down maybe two or 3,000 feet because you can find especially natural gas at, at those depths. And geologically, some of these companies just weren't aware that or didn't account for the presence of that shallow gas. And so as they were drilling down, they hit these pockets of gas and the wells weren't really constructed to seal off that gas sufficiently. And so that's where you started to get some of the methane being able to migrate up and leak away, end up in, you know, private wells in, in some circumstances. But even though the presence of shallow gas may have been a surprise, the drilling company in Ohio back in 2007 saw signs of leakage and continued to frack anyway. Ironically, saw signs of leakage and continued to frack anyway is also why Nick Cannon has 12 kids. But once that natural gas seeped into the Payne's basement, all it took was one spark to ignite it and make the Payne's house go full Wizard of Oz. And yes, it was the wall's poor construction that led to the incident, but since the Marcellus Shale contains more methane than your typical fossil fuel producing region, these construction mistakes make it a whole lot more likely for the burbs to start blowing up. And even if it doesn't create direct hazards like that one, methane is also a greenhouse gas, with 28 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide and the primary contributor to the formation of ground-level ozone. And yes, there's a reason we want the ozone layer in the sky and not in our general breathing space. As the main irritant in smog, ground-level ozone causes 1 million premature deaths every year, according to UNEP. And if you've seen that episode of The Crown, you know how harmful smog can be. You also know that Lady D and Princess Margaret deserved better, but I digress. Back to chemistry, when methane or other volatile organic compounds react with nitrogen oxide, ground-level ozone forms. We talked about methane leaks, but in Pennsylvania, researchers also found that nitrogen oxide emissions were 20 to 40 times higher than a level that would constitute a major emissions source in counties where natural gas drilling is concentrated. That has had a devastating impact on local communities. One such community is Nicetown, Pennsylvania. And no, it's not the setting of a PBS show where each character teaches you table manners, although I'm writing that idea down. Located in North Philadelphia, Nicetown's population is over 85% black and has a poverty rate of 42%. Nicetown also suffers up to 75% more fine particulate pollution and 95% more diesel exhaust than any other neighborhoods across the country. As a result of that, one in three children have asthma in Nicetown, the highest rate in the nation. So logically, in 2016, the Southeastern Pennsylvania Transportation Authority, or SEPTA, proposed a $27 million natural gas-fired power plant in Nicetown. You know, because apparently we're going for an asthma high score here. 
The plant would power 70% of the Northern Philadelphia Rail Service, the Midvale Bus Depot, and get this, children's hospitals. That's right, their solution to air pollution is more air pollution. That's like solving my sleep deprivation by staying up all night googling solutions for sleep deprivation. Actually, that sounds like something I would do. Probably why I need a methane explosion to wake me up in the morning. But these health concerns are really scary. Listen to Tariq Khan, a family nurse practitioner in Nicetown, describe his experience at a 2019 protest of the power plant. Now they say there's nothing really to worry about. It's just a Wayne Junction industrial site, nothing to see here. Uh, but we know that this neighborhood, in addition to the 10,000 people that they have living here, there are 2,500 infants and toddlers living in the one mile radius. A school nurse told me that she remembers carrying a child from that health, from that, from that school to our health center, to my colleague standing right over there, Hope. They carried that child to her and he was gasping for air. These children have the worst air quality and this septic power plant's gonna make it worse. And that's a big deal to have a family nurse practitioner sounding the alarm bells like that. I'm sure he doesn't want to be out protesting power plants. He'd probably rather be, well, family nurse practitioning. But this power plant is just too serious to ignore. And to hear Tariq's story, it's no wonder why. Ultimately, stories like these and protests from dozens of community groups failed to stop the project. SEPTA's natural gas plant opened in November 2020 and continues to operate today. Fracking also contributes to water pollution in the region. Fracking involves shooting a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals deep into the ground to break up the shale. That's right, fracking's a homewrecker. That shale was happy and you just broke it up for no reason. According to Dr. Yoxheimer, that fracking fluid isn't necessarily contaminating groundwater from deep in the ground, but rather from where it's been stored. So to be able to detect some of the chemicals, uh, we used a two-dimensional gas chromatography that's coupled to time-of-flight mass spectrometry. Very easy to say. And we're able to detect some of these unique chemicals in groundwater, in people's wells that originated somehow from either the drilling or likely the drilling, but maybe the, the fracturing process, probably more so by storing waste fluids at the surface, which is really where there's probably more potential for contaminants to end up into the environment is in how these chemicals are stored at the surface, not so much how they're injected five, six, seven, eight thousand feet down into a into the shale. And when those chemicals get into our water, let's just say that's not a day at the beach. I mean if a kid pulls up to a water gun fight with a super soaker filled with fracking fluid, either the neighborhood bully just became the godfather of elementary school, or Timmy won't be getting his lunch money stolen ever again. Let's hope the double XL Frackmaster four thousand falls into the right hands. But water pollution in the Marcellus Shale is a little different from other regions. And that's because from the 1800s through the 1970s, long before fracking, Appalachia was America's primary coal-producing region. 
coal mining had its own influences on this region's landscapes, forests, water, and people for over 200 years. For one thing, canneries have forever boycotted caves. But in those southwestern Pennsylvania places where there is coal, oil, and gas, researchers have found higher levels of chloride in the groundwater. That's different from northeast Pennsylvania, where there's that rich methane gas, but not centuries of coal mining leading up to it. But that's a problem in the western Marcellus. High levels of chloride can corrode and weaken metallic piping and fixtures, pose issues for the health of fish and amphibians, and decrease the ability of soil to retain water and store nutrients, making it more prone to erosion and sediment runoff. In other words, these western Marcellus communities are facing a double whammy of water pollution. It's like putting on deodorant without actually washing your pits. You still stink, you've introduced tons of chemicals, and you've ruined Old Spice for everyone. How has Marcellus played out economically? To share another one of its quirks, the Marcellus Shale is relatively skinny, with some parts only measuring 25 feet in thickness. I mean seriously, the Marcellus could hula hoop a Cheerio, give her a candy bar or something. But what the fashion magazines aren't telling you is being too skinny causes problems. You know how when you get to the end of a Slurpee, you have to poke and poke your straw just to get those last diabetes-inducing drops? Well, imagine the Slurpee is natural gas, and the straw is a vertical well, and each time you poke, you have to spend a lot of time and money just to get a tiny little sliver. It's just not profitable to extract natural gas that way, which is why the region remained relatively untouched until technology caught up. Now, with fracking, a drill bit switches directions and follows the natural direction of the shale, drilling horizontally. Now, instead of extracting gas from only a 25-foot section, you can extract from a section that extends a mile or more, all from a single location. It's like poking your bendy straw from childhood upside down into one Slurpee and being able to get Slurpee from all the 7-Elevens in the tri-state area. In 2007, Penn State estimated that around 50 trillion cubic feet of natural gas could be recovered from the Marcellus Shale. In 2007, Penn State also announced that they were benching tight end Andrew Corliss for most of his sophomore season, which is interesting when he later got drafted into the NFL and won a Super Bowl. So you tell me which announcement had the bigger impact. But fossil fuel companies jumped on that news. Much like my L.A. apartment, the price for leasing rose from $300 per acre in February 2008 to $2,100 in April. At one point, lease prices reached $6,000 an acre. In 2008 alone, the Marcellus gas industry in Pennsylvania generated $2.3 billion, more than 29,000 jobs, and $240 million in state and local taxes. But unfortunately, the cost caught up to the benefits pretty quickly. According to a study in Nature, between 2004 and 2016, shale development created a regional economic boost of $21 billion in Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia, but $23 billion in costs related to the 1,200 to 4,600 premature deaths linked to air pollution from the industry. 
But even if we don't take it that far, according to Dr. Yoxheimer, people's perceptions of the industry may very well be shaped by if they're the ones getting those hefty land leasing checks or not. So if you're a landowner, you were very excited about it, for a large landowner especially. But for the, the folks who didn't own the restaurants or the hotels and maybe didn't own a lot of land, you know, they're kind of dealing with the potential side effects of lots of trucks going up and down the roads and the unknown environmental impacts and things like that. So you definitely had people concerned, you know, about the, the environmental impacts and and often they didn't have uh, any skin in the game when it came to the economic impacts. One way to see if an industry is positively affecting an area is by looking at trends in income distribution. If the proportion of a higher income bracket increases, that's a pretty good indication that an industry is increasing community wealth. However, the income distribution of the population living closest to shale gas wells in Pennsylvania hadn't changed at all from 2000 to 2013. They didn't even get bar mitzvah money. And part of that is because since fracking was so new to the region in the early days, in 2011, more than 70% of the workers at Pennsylvania Marcellus shale drilling sites came from out of state. And in West Virginia, in November 2011, Wetzel County had the highest unemployment rate in the state, but also the most natural gas drilling activity. Creating jobs? I assume the local Wetzel's pretzels factory had more job openings than natural gas. And no, I did not look up if Wetzel County, West Virginia has a giant factory churning out salty doughy bites of heaven and dunking them in vats of butter before shipping them to malls across the country, but come on, why else would that song say, Almost Heaven, West Virginia? The good news is that more jobs are staying in-state today, but we're also not seeing a rush of new leases or rapidly expanding production in the region the way we did over a decade ago. There is a massive excess of natural gas on the market, which has made it a lot less profitable to drill and frack for it, leaving companies in the region to tighten up, struggle to pay off debt, and disappoint their investors. There's also been a shift to focusing on more of the natural gas liquids in the West Marcellus, but as those flood the market, experts suggest a similar price plummet could happen there. In 2019, the stocks of Marcellus Pioneer's Range Resources and EQT had plummeted, and Chevron took a multi-billion dollar write-down on its Appalachian shale assets, much of which was Pennsylvania natural gas. The Sweaty Penguin also took a multi-billion dollar write-down recently, but sadly, we then found out we can't just say we're taking a multi-billion dollar write-down and expect anything to happen. At least according to one Scranton, Pennsylvania accountant we spoke to. Today, according to Macro Axis, Range Resources has a 45% probability to go bankrupt in the next two years, and EQT has a 42% probability of the same fate. That's not to say they will, it's possible they have a very successful two years, but as these companies struggle, especially bigger ones like Chevron, it's the employees and the local vendors who often see the short end of the stick. And of course, we can't leave out the fact that the second highest emitting carbon bomb is also playing a role in global climate change, the impacts of which are being felt in the region. 
Federal Emergency Management Agency records show that West Virginia has experienced more flooding disasters since the 1950s than any state except for California and Texas, which are ten times as large. That's because West Virginia's steep mountainous terrain has forced people to build at the bottom of river valleys, and of all 50 states, it has the highest percentage of roads, commercial properties, and infrastructure in danger of being flooded. Those floods can also then disrupt fracking activities, spread some of those water pollutants around, and all in all, make it a lot harder for Country Road to take you home. Climate change, of course, leads to a higher rate of extreme precipitation events in the region. There's lots of other climate impacts here, from heat waves to cold waves to landslides to pests affecting agriculture, but that flood vulnerability in particular was something I didn't know, and that really stood out to me. It's not just coastal cities, drought-stricken deserts, and polar bears who are too lazy to swim for the rest of their life. Even an inland state like West Virginia has unique climate vulnerabilities. So should we just ban everything in the Marcellus Shale? Of course not. In our next segment, we'll explore how the region can become more economically prosperous, a better friend to the local and global environment, and ensure nobody's home gets blown into a sea of munchkins and heartless tin men. everyone at this CVS to think you're a juiced-up, deadlifting machine when really you've just been throwing up? Then Gatorade is for you. Athletes and flu victims are all the same in Gatorade's eyes. With tons of electrolytes, Gatorade is almost as hydrating as just drinking water. Gatorade, the frat bro of drinks. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. So where does the Marcellus Shale region go from here? First off, I know I scared the natural gas out of you all by saying that the Marcellus Shale is the world's second largest carbon bomb. But some good news is that like the blackheads on my nose, there's no way it'll ever be extracted to its full potential. Those pores run deep. And there's a few reasons, chief among them being that New York banned fracking completely, meaning that the 18,700 square mile section of the Marcellus Shale in southern New York will never be touched. Is New York perfect on energy? Far from it. They import a lot of natural gas from places like Pennsylvania, they shut down a nuclear plant recently about a half hour north of New York City, which made the state even more reliant on fossil fuels, and they waste perfectly good electricity, powering a giant ball just to drop it over a bunch of people in adult diapers in Times Square every New Year's Eve. But New York does have a growing clean energy industry despite all that, and they have the third highest GDP in the country behind California and Texas, so clearly they've done alright for themselves economically without getting into fracking. Yes, there's a lot of nuance to that situation I don't have time to get into, but it does help the global climate quite a bit that they've made these decisions. As for the places where Marcellus Shale extraction is active, it should at least be benefiting the local communities rather than just subjecting them to pollutants. Obviously, landowners got their paydays over a decade ago, but beyond that, 
Dr. Yaxheimer stressed the importance of training local workforces so that they can fill those natural gas jobs. And so unless you have people that know, you know, who are well tenders or drillers, you know, people who make things happen out in the field, it's really hard to just throw somebody into that and say, hey, go, go produce some oil and gas. And so that's where, you know, the universities, Penn State being one of them, stepped in and said, hey, we need to train folks so they can get some of these good paying jobs. And so the, the tables really have turned where you probably had three quarters of the people working in the industry here, uh, you know, 15 years ago were from out of state. I think you could argue it's flipped around and it's probably two thirds to three quarters of people working in the oil and gas industry or from Pennsylvania. It takes more than 150 types of jobs to drill one natural gas well. So helping in-state workers learn those jobs and join the industry can help transfer some of the economic benefit to local communities. And what are all these jobs, you ask? Well, you have pipeline technicians, mechanics, drivers, electricians, rig operators. But of course, we can't overlook our unsung heroes. You also need to train the gas production assistants, the gas office production assistants, the gas writers assistants, and those jobs are only available via nepotism. That's a Hollywood reference for anyone who didn't major in film and television and find themselves after graduation writing jokes for this podcast instead of getting their dream job of being the assistant to the assistant to the undersecretary to Shonda Rhimes. With university programs like the one Dr. Yoxheimer described, locals are already seeing more and more jobs, and it would certainly be exciting to see that trend continue. Another way for locals to see more economic benefits is to take a look at the way Pennsylvania taxes the industry. And before you say boo taxes, I promise I'm with you. Even filling out a W-9 makes me want to put my head through a wall. But essentially every other state that produces fossil fuels, even tax-friendly havens like Alaska, Florida, and North Dakota, have what's called a severance tax, which taxes based on the volume or value of extracted materials. Interestingly, severance tax is also Adam Scott's stripper name. But Pennsylvania doesn't do that. Instead, they use what's called an impact fee, which is a flat fee per well. And it might not sound like a big distinction, but the impact fee ends up resulting in less tax revenue for Pennsylvania than states with a severance tax receive. Since that money goes towards schools, roads, and paying librarians to hunt you down to yell at you for not returning the lightning thief when you were seven, it really does matter for local communities what kind of tax revenue the state gets from the industry. It also helps the state enforce environmental protections and lower taxes for everyone else. Now, I have seen researchers suggest the amount of money a severance tax would raise is somewhat negligible, and honestly, it just depends on how the tax is structured. But let me just say this. One, it's not like companies would leave Pennsylvania if they changed this tax, because every other state has this tax, and they're not going to find better cheesesteaks anywhere else anyway. And two, if natural gas companies are paying lower taxes here than any other state and still face the threat of bankruptcy, that's a problem. Now that's just one path forward, and I talk about it because of how standard practice it is everywhere else, but it could help bring some more economic benefit 
back to local communities. According to Dr. Yoxheimer, local communities can also better connect with the industry if the industry becomes a little more transparent. I think communication is going to be key so that, you know, when you think about, you know, the landowner needs to be happy with this, you know, and the neighbors need to be happy with that. So if the landowner is reaping most of the financial benefits, but the surrounding neighbors who aren't leased or just really aren't getting as much money aren't, you know, there's going to be some, I guess, inequities there. But at the end of the day, you know, if the energy company can come in and say, hey, here's what we propose to do, you get most, most people buying into that. Transparency isn't the norm in the natural gas industry. Well, the gas is transparent, but you get what I mean. The more people know what's going on, the more they'll be able to evaluate what's best for them. Although I hope they don't get too see-through because, well, that would make it hard to see and walk and stuff. But since the Marcellus Shale isn't stopping production tomorrow, even with these economic realities, what steps forward can we take in the meantime? Well, interestingly, researchers have recently found highly concentrated lithium in the Marcellus Shale wastewater. And lithium is a key element in solar batteries. You've heard of the Energizer Bunny, now get ready for the fracking wastewater ferret. He wears safety goggles and clanks rocks together, but yeah, you get used to him. But this find could be a huge deal. First, there's only one active brine mine in the US that produces lithium. Second, there's only one active brine mine with an adorable rhyming name. Third, there's a shortage of lithium available in the global marketplace and its price has fluctuated significantly in recent years. And lastly, most of our lithium comes from far, far away places like Australia, China, and the fictional land from Shrek. But if we're being honest, their fairy dust is way more affordable. If we're able to more regularly get lithium from US-based sources, solar developers can produce and store more energy reduce supply chain volatility, and even reduce supply chain emissions by reducing the import of lithium from far corners of the world. Another possibility some scientists propose is strengthening setback regulations in the Marcellus. And boy do I wish I had some of those. If we could cap my number of setbacks per year at like 10, we might actually get this podcast off the ground. In the oil and gas world, Setbacks are land zoning regulations intended to physically separate industrial activities from places like homes, schools, hospitals, and surface water. Pennsylvania currently enforces a 500-foot setback policy, but that's not even the distance on my cousin's ex-husband's restraining order, so it's definitely too short to prevent environmental consequences. Even when the setback distance was just doubled to 1,000 feet, Scientists found the amount of Pennsylvanians exposed to dangerous fine particulate matter would be cut in half. Finding what number keeps people safe without causing excessive siting problems for the industry could be worthwhile. And Greg, if you're listening, Cousin Donna's move across the country does not mean she wants you back. All that said, the Marcellus region has all the tools it needs to move away from fossil fuel production too. And while you have to do that sensibly, 
It doesn't happen overnight. But the global climate would certainly benefit from phasing down the second highest emitting carbon bomb on Earth. How would they do that? For one, Pennsylvania has some of the best wind energy potential in the eastern United States. West Virginia also has wind energy potential in the Northeast, and lots of hydropower potential, being such a mountainous state. And we talk about working to train locals on natural gas jobs, but that same energy could be put into training people to fill clean energy jobs. In Pennsylvania, jobs in the clean energy sector grew by 8.7% between 2017 and 2019, and in that same time frame, the coal and natural gas industries saw job losses of 3.3% and 7.4%. If the jobs are there for clean energy, and it doesn't create the same environmental impacts, why not see if you can make that work? Pennsylvania invented bifocals and french fries on a sandwich, so if anyone can figure this out, it's gotta be them. I know there's no simple path forward when you're talking about one of the largest fossil fuel projects in the world. There's going to be disagreement. But whatever local communities want, be it jobs, money, health, justice, or a stable global climate, they can be a part of that solution. And if there's any issue with that, I promise you, Ethane Brown will gladly come to the rescue. Come on! This wraps up episode 113 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from Tariq Khan. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.